Hello, and welcome to another episode of Granite Justice, navigating civil legal issues in your daily life. I'm your host, Shane Cooper, an associate dean at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Please remember as you listen, this podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing said here by either party constitutes legal advice of any kind or creates any attorney-client relationship between a listener and New Hampshire Legal Assistance or 603 Legal Aid or the UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. It is possible that the law has changed after recording this podcast episode where the information shared does not exactly fit with your specific situation. For the most up-to-date information or to get legal help, please visit 603legalaid.org. New Hampshire's population is aging faster than the national average, putting a strain on services and care programs for older adults. Today, my guest is Cheryl Steinberg, who directs the Justice and Aging Project for New Hampshire Legal Assistance. Today, Cheryl is here to talk about the project and the free legal services available to Granite Staters who are 60 years of age or older. Thanks for joining the show, Cheryl. Oh, no, thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here. Great. And Cheryl, what is the Justice and Aging Project all about? Well, it is a project specifically, as you mentioned just a little before, about people 60 years of age and older, where we help them with civil legal problems at no cost. The age comes from the funding source we receive, where we receive funding through the state of New Hampshire that's Older Americans Act funding, and that funding does require us to serve people starting at 60 years of age and older that are the most socially and economically needy individuals. So that's what we do, and our services are free. And we've been around for almost as long as NHLA has been around. NHLA was created in 1971, and we started receiving these Older American Act funds in 1975, and we've been the sole you know, provider for older people through these, this funding source in the state since then. It's different in other states, but in our state, we're the only entity that gets these funds and provides these services. That's a great introduction, and it's uh, good to know that this project does exist and that it's been in operation for so long. And you mentioned the, the term civil legal problems. So what type of civil, civil legal problems would fall under this Justice and Aging Project? Well, in addition to all the stuff that we do at New Hampshire Legal Assistance regarding housing, so benefits and domestic violence and so forth, we have special priorities for the Justice and Aging Project that was created from a legal needs assessment we did now that it's getting on. Fortunately, kind of old, so we're trying. We're hoping to do a new one soon. But so our, our main focus for the project is elder financial exploitation, abusive and illegal debt collection practices, and long-term care residents' rights, which is usually in the context of improper discharges from nursing homes and assisted living facilities. But you know, that being said, I will say that housing, just regular housing issues like evictions and foreclosures and all that kind of stuff and fair housing related issues is really the top category of the kinds of cases we handle for older people by far and it has been consistently for probably ever as far as I know but then you know again also the improper termination of benefits and again domestic violence and other related issues that we just do generally in New Hampshire legal assistance well, that uh, one of the things you led with that I'm sure I'll ask some follow-up questions later about elder financial exploitation and debt collection practices. That, I, I'm going to hold that for a moment, uh, but it's nice to know that that is one of the, the main priorities based on the, the assessment. Let me ask, um, how many cases does NHLA take each year 
under this uh, Justice and Aging Project? Well, as far as actual cases, just including the clients only, like last year, I added up 284 cases that we handled, but that doesn't include all the people we provide information and referrals to and so forth and the household members. And if you count up all of that, it's over 1,800 people that benefited from the project. It's quite the reach and I'm sure such an impact across when you're impacting the individual themselves and then their family members and other associated household members. And does do you take part or does the Justice and Aging Project have any play in policy advocacy or formation? Is there any work in that area? Yep. Yeah. So one, one of the things that the Justice and Aging Project does is we serve in conjunction with New Futures, which is an advocacy organization, as the lead advocacy entity on behalf of the New Hampshire Alliance for Healthy Aging. Uh, And that is a coalition of stakeholders in New Hampshire that are focused on improving the health and well-being of Granite Staters as they age. So we've been doing that for, gosh, that's uh, several years now, over five, yeah, maybe like seven years. And so we have a a long-term policy agenda, and we've been following through with that, and we do grassroots advocacy where we try to get actual, you know, older people to be advocates and reach out. And then we also just try to implement our own policy agenda to to move certain things forward that we have determined our priorities. And so could you repeat the name of the of the group that that is again? Sure. The New Hampshire Alliance for Healthy Aging. Okay. And is that similar or is that the same thing as as I was preparing for this, I understood that there is a state commission on aging. Is that a separate entity? Yes, it is. Or the, okay. And, and my understanding is that you're involved with that as well. So you're pretty busy in this area for sure. Right. Well, I'm not, I'm not personally at this point involved with the state commission on aging, but I, we did part of what the Alliance for Healthy Aging did was help create the state commission on aging. So I mean, we, we, we're involved in a way, but I'm not like sitting on this commission on aging myself. But So just if we unwind a bit of how this has evolved, there is the Alliance on Healthy Aging that, that you were involved with. And one of the, is it, I assume a recommendation was that a state commission be created on this topic? Yes, exactly. And how did it, in the formation, I'm interested in, in the state being involved in that. How, how did that come about beyond the Alliance recommending it, uh, the, the different people you saw involved and how that came to be and have the support to create such a commission? Well, the state already had, the New Hampshire Department of Health and Human Services was already overseeing a state committee on aging that was statutorily created many years ago. And the committee itself really did not have any authority to do much of anything. So they would meet and, but they had no paid staff. And they, even though they, they they were really tried to accomplish some good things. They just really didn't have the, either the staffing or the, you know, again, authority to do much. So that's where it came. And I, I think that the, the Department of Health and Human Services honestly was happy to create a bigger commission where they weren't, ha- they didn't have to be responsible for it anymore, quite honestly. So they were fully supportive of doing this. So the whole idea was this, is was to, with the commission was to make it bigger than what the committee was and, and include more, in, you know, have more interagency participation from other state agencies and then and the public and also make it its own standalone entity that is independent of any other agency. 
so that's that's what we did and the department uh, so the state was fully supportive of it as was the governor i'm trying to remember now but we really didn't i will say that you know it, it went fairly well there was a little bit just because change is hard i think some of the state committee members were a little you know reluctant to to make the change because they were worried about how it was all going to play out. So what we ended up doing, and I think this is what really was key to making it a smooth process, is that the current committee members automatically transitioned to the new commission, at least initially. So they were became part of the commission and were in, for a term, and then it could then transfer to other members, in addition to adding these new members that we didn't that weren't even there before so you know there's a variety of agencies department of transportation the attorney general's office department of employment security so forth i mean these are all agencies that we feel we felt really were key because i mean this is part of the problem too that with all of this with aging is to try to get agencies to think through the lens of aging which they don't necessarily do it's not their fault necessarily, but you know all these different agencies do have a role in making New Hampshire age friendly and in promoting activities and infrastructure and so forth that uh, will support people as they age. So that's that was the whole idea of why we wanted to get those people involved. And then there's just there's members of the public that are from different different counties. That I mean, and that was a holdover from the Committee on Aging and um, one of the compromises we made on that, which it can be good or bad because sometimes it's just hard to find people from every single county to participate. <laughs> anyway, um, Well, that's really helpful context because now, so it's, it's good to know there's a governmental organization in the state, the Commission on Aging and how that have evolved. You've mentioned the Alliance and, and I'm definitely going to get to the more specific legal topics. I know our listeners are interested in that, but, but to follow the policy strand one more level. So we've got the Alliance, we've got the state commission. You mentioned that when, with the work with the Alliance, there are certain policy issues that you try to forward or champion. Could you highlight uh, maybe a couple of top priorities that you think are, are out there on the public policy front with respect to this aging issue here in New Hampshire? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the thing that really has been a really overarching goal for us is increasing access to home and community-based services. I mean, certainly there's a lot of other issues too, but that really has been a big focus of ours. And actually, New Futures, which is the partner I mentioned that we partner with, with our policy for to shorthand AHA is what I usually refer to it as, Alliance for Healthy Aging. Um, they got their own grant through what's now called Point 32 Health. It was called specifically for rebalancing our long-term care system. And rebalancing means, I, I think in New Hampshire, there's been this institutional bias. So what, what it is, is like the things just seem to go by default to people going to nursing homes versus being in their homes just for a variety of reasons. A lot of it has to do with the funding mechanism and so forth. We, we New Hampshire is a very convoluted long-term care funding system, which I can't, I'm not going to even try to explain. So the bottom line is that we really wanted to try to change that, you know, and that we're still working on that to change the default to be home and community-based care. Because if you ask people, they overwhelmingly want to be able to age in place, age in their homes or in the community and not in an institution. 
and there's a lot of, so even that's the most important thing. And then even beyond that, it's a more cost-effective way to provide care on top of it. And we're such a aging state. I mean, New Hampshire is the second oldest state in the country. And, you know, we already are having, I mean, I've said it's a crisis as it is right now, providing long-term care services to people in New Hampshire, and it's only going to get worse. I mean, our elder population is going to explode even more than it is now. I think by the year 2040, um, it's like a third of our population is going to be 65 years of age and older, I think is the correct <laughs> statistic. Um, so but it, 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 there's no doubt. So we're working on that. We So this past session, we were successful. So part of that rebalancing initiative that we got the funding for was to get a, a policy report done, which we did through the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute to show investments that have been made over time or more really accurately lack of investment in home care and, and the outcome, you know, the, the, um, outcomes of that. And anyway, to help us make the argument why we needed to move forward in this direction. And so that the report was very comprehensive and did get a lot of support and uh, attention. And we were able to use that to then create this bill that we introduced last year and, and it passed called System of Care for Healthy Aging. And that is based on a a bill that, or it was now a law that New Hampshire has for children's behavioral health, system of care for children's behavioral health. So we use that as a model. There's a variety of things in that bill that help us move the needle towards increasing access to home and community-based services. So we are very happy about that. We consider that a pretty successful outcome from our efforts. <laughs> um, and we're, well, sorry. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. That, well, that's uh, an eye opener that I hope our listeners are picking up on. I certainly didn't know that, that we are the second oldest state in the, in the U.S. I, I didn't know that. And that the numbers of demographics you're pointing to of how this is going to be an increasingly, it's already sounds like a, a strained system, but even more so coming our way and not that long from now. And selfishly, I think about it, I'm going to be in that population in about that time that you're mentioning. And I'm, uh, I'm with you. I w- I'd rather be in my home than in a nursing home. And I, I hate to joke about it with my children now, but we kind of do a little bit, but it's going to become a more serious conversation down the road. And I, and, and I, you know, with my aging parents as well, you, these are things that all, all of us as in generational, you know, situations face. And, and it usually only comes up at Moments in time, it's not something you're thinking about today, but I'm so glad that you and others in the Alliance are highlighting this. And I hope, if anything, the listeners take away today that they understand how much of an issue this is here in the Granite State and um, and that there are people working on the policy for sure. Yes, we are. I, I could also say, I mean, uh, New Hampshire Legal Assistance, so not the Alliance for Healthy Aging, is also involved in a lawsuit that we're partnered with the Disabilities Rights Center in New Hampshire, the AARP Foundation, and Nixon Peabody to try to rectify deficiencies in our state's Medicaid-funded home and community-based program called the Choices for Independence program that serves people with disabilities and older adults. So it's supposed to be an alternative to nursing home care. So we're, we're working on that front too. <laughs> okay, getting it every way. So po- policy and legal, and of course, uh, I'm associated with the law school here, Unit Tringer Pierce, yep. and we would have aspiring attorneys to work on the legal front, if not on the policy front as well. Yes. Well, let me dive in then a little more specifically back to the various legal issues. And 
we've mentioned, I think broadly at least, and maybe help you explain this a bit further, the, the challenges that people would face in accessing these long-term or other care services. Yes. What are, are that, what, what is the challenge, I, I suppose? It sounds like there is one. I just don't know exactly yeah. what's costing. I mean, the biggest problem, I mean, I, I guess it depends. So if you're talking for Medicaid-funded program, I mean, there's all kinds of issues with just even getting found eligible because the application process is very burdensome and so forth. So some of that is addressed. Hopefully those things can be improved a bit from the system of care bill I mentioned. But really the biggest challenge overall is workforce issues and lack of providers. And it isn't, I mean, I will say it is just not New Hampshire that is experiencing this problem. I mean, it is pretty much a national problem. And I don't know how we compare to other states. My guess is it's probably more pronounced just because we have such an, you know, an older population, you know, percentage wise. But the, the problem is there's just not enough people to do the work. And, and uh, th- that relates to a lot of different factors, but rates is one of the, for, particularly for Medicaid, the rates have historically been very low, the reimbursement rates. And then there's also this, I mean, perception about the profession itself that, you know, I, I, it, it isn't perceived as a, an area where people feel like it's that attractive to them that they want to go to. I mean, it isn't as respected as I think it needs to be because, my God, you know, it's, it's a hard job and very much needed. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we're, we're where we're at, where we are today, but that's overall. I mean, you probably even just heard, I mean, it was on the radio, I think even this morning or even and yesterday on, on uh, National Public Radio on NPR, I heard you know that Biden, you know, there's these new requirements for nursing homes. I mean, nursing homes have the same issue with lack of help in their in their facilities. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that too. I mean, similar, but, uh, and so they're already saying, I know that the representative in New Hampshire that, that represents the Nursing Home Association here was saying he doesn't think it's going to be possible to meet these new guidelines that the Biden administration has just imposed for staffing. But, you know, I think it's important. I mean, so, so anyway, my, my feeling, I mean, this is just, I, you know, I, I think, you know, I mean, I think it is important. I mean, nursing homes, you know, you have to have them still, but really, uh, you know, I'd like to see it more like, let's get people the help in, you know, in other places. <laughs> yeah. So, so someone that's out there now um, facing this issue of needing the long-term care, one, you've mentioned the lack of capacity within the community at home, the pressures on uh, nursing homes to have a workforce to provide it. And, and you mentioned at the top about some of the legal issues that someone may may present at, at the project. And, and one thing you mentioned is, let's say they are fortunate enough to have gotten into a nursing home, perhaps because they can't have the home caregiver. And then you mentioned how you might help them because there's times when they're being forced out of the, those situations. And Yeah. Um, I mean, I will say, I think it happens more in assisted living facilities probably than nursing homes. But yeah, I mean, we absolutely do that. So if someone is under our state law, they're, they're, well, and actually there's also federal regulations that cover nursing homes. They have to go through a certain process before they can discharge somebody. And there, there's limited amount of reasons. And usually, I mean, the two biggest ones I would say is either non-payment of the fee if they're not on Medicaid or a behavior-based kind of issue. And yeah, and so we would help them to try to prevent the the discharge. I mean, the thing with discharges is they can't just let people, you know, they can't just uh, basically uh, kick them out and call a cab and 
you know, send them on their way. They have to find a safe and appropriate alternate placement. So that's helpful. And well, how does, and I was going to ask technically, how does one, I'm thinking for the listener out there, perhaps with an aging person in their family that they're supporting, or I'm wondering, how does this person come to you for the help in the first place? I, I, you know, how do they, how do they even get to you, you know? Well, for the nursing home assisted living type issues, uh, there's um, an Office of Long-Term Care Ombudsman in New Hampshire, and their job is to accept complaints and reports from people that are experiencing issues in these facilities. And the facility actually is required to fax a copy of the discharge notice to the ombudsman's office every time they issue one. So usually what I I think more often than not, that's where we get our referrals. We we work very closely with them. It's federal, it's federal law, actually. Yeah, every state has to have an office of long-term care ombudsman. Ours happens to be under the auspices of the New Hampshire Department of Health and Human Services, but it, it doesn't have to be there and they are supposed to be independent. I see. So there's a safeguard in place, if you will, if it's working properly and the facilities following the law that the ombudsman office will know when this is happening and that will generate a possible referral to your team. Yes. Okay. Let me shift gears then. You mentioned one of the other huge problems or issues out there that you help people with, and that is with elder financial abuse or exploitation. Could you talk a little bit about the challenges there? Oh, wow. Yeah, sure. There's, I mean, that's a huge problem still, you know, only getting worse. And again, in New Hampshire, because we have such a aging population, I do think it affects us probably more than maybe other states, but it really is just, you know, simply the improper use uh, of uh, someone else, you know, an older person's assets. And it can come in a variety of ways. I mean, what I think people hear about a lot is all the scams and, and so forth, which are, are certainly hugely prevalent, right? So grandparent scams and IRS scams and what have you. And those are big problems. But really, the we're limited in what we can do for those people, because once the money is gone, it's usually pretty hard to ever get that back. But where we help mostly is in cases where there's more family members, which actually is the higher percentage, I should also point out, even though, you know, all the news is always about the scams and stuff, which is, you know, getting more and more of a, you know, growing, but still the, the more prevalent type of exploitation is with family members and people in positions of trust that take advantage of the older person. And, and, you know, sometimes it isn't totally premeditated, but it happens. And so it can come in a variety of ways. You know, the way we, a very common scenario that we see is this agreement between the older person and their children, uh, adult child, let's say, who says, Hey, you know, um, why don't I, uh, why don't we buy a, well, it could be a few things either. Why don't you transfer the house to me and I'll live here with you and take care of you for the rest of your life. And I promise, right. And it's all oral. And then one thing uh, happened, you know, the next thing you know, oh, okay. Um, sorry, I, uh, can't, you can't, I can't afford for you to live here anymore. Or they get in an hour, whatever it is. Next thing you know, the, the uh, older person is out, you know, getting, getting kicked out of the house or all their money is getting taken from them or whatever it might be. And so we can try to help get the property back in their name, depending on what it is, or at least just a life estate. So that would be one thing. I mean, we had one case where the children the, where the son had 
put the house on the market and was ready to sell it. And we were able to stop the sale and get an agreement for to, to let our client live in the house for you know, as long as she needed to. And other ways we can just do a legal action to force the sale of the home and let the client get the money they're entitled to. So there's a variety of ways you can do that. Other way, other ways people being taken advantage of is, let's say, an adult child decides they need to move back in for whatever reason, and they just won't leave, and they don't pay rent, and then the and then their significant other moves in with the children, and 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 so they basically have all these squatters in the house that are spending all you know all their money and whatever. So we can help them get rid of those people, and then another new one that's come up, which actually isn't family members. But it's we buy homes cheap kind of thing, you know, businesses. Oh, my God. I've already had several of those lately. And I'm really concerned that those are going to be a really big problem. They prey on people who are, you know, really in a vulnerable state and get them to sell these houses for really cheap. And and then they re- afterwards are like, oh, my God, what did I just do? So we have several of those going on right now. So. Let me let me switch back to the family issue. How how does that typically end up on your your doorstep? Is it a the, the elder person themselves that are find out they're being taken advantage of and ask for the help? Is it other family members that see the exploitation? Yes, I would say the latter. Yeah, because more often than not, they're ashamed and they don't want to ex- admit that it happened, or they don't want to get the family member in trouble, or whatever it might be. Yes, so. It's usually somebody else, a third party. I mean, you should, I, there is a mandatory reporting requirement in New Hampshire. Nobody really knows this, unfortunately. And I think there should be more publicity about, but really any, any person in the state that suspects any kind of abuse, neglect, or exploitation of a vulnerable adult, which isn't necessarily just strictly an older person. It's anybody 18 years of age or older that is considered vulnerable for whatever reason is supposed to report it to the Bureau of Elderly and Adult Services. But that's another way we get referrals to sometimes is through them because they do investigations. And if they think that there's something we can do to help, we'll get involved. Well, that's an important fact as well. So I've heard so far amongst the many important things you said, the second oldest state, we've got an issue and the Office of Long-Term Care and Ombudsman's Office that so that people know when they're being discharged from you know assisted living facilities. And then that there's actually a Bureau of Elder and Adult Services, which will take reports when you suspect there's an exploitation or abuse of an of a elder person. Okay. And the reason why I want to point this out in the podcast is I just have to think out there, there's someone out there listening who has a family member or has seen or heard or knows of an issue going on, and they're likely going to be the ones that would be the ones to act and help to then bring bring that person or that situation to your office for help. So it's interesting that that's how you were getting most of your referrals. Yes, right. I think so. And, and again, or through the Bureau of Elderly and Adult Services. I should also, there, well, this isn't like a reporting thing, but we, I do, do I'm also part of something called a financial abuse specialty team. We call it the New Hampshire FAST. And it's a multi-sector group of a lot of financial institutions and other social service providers and so forth, where we try to come up with strategies to respond to elder financial exploitation. And part of what we did with that group is we created, well, we, we did an ad campaign a few years ago that played during the pandemic called Stay Connected. And there's actually a website for that if people want information about 
and resources for elder financial exploitation. It's called staycannectednh.com. Anyway, so yeah, we had we had an ad for that, and there's also the elder abuse and exploitation unit of the attorney general's office that does criminal prosecutions of these cases. One of the things that at HLA did now back in now 2014 is we helped get a law passed that criminalized the act of financial exploitation. Because prior to that, there wasn't a specific law on the books and these cases would always, you know, very frequently get pushed away by law enforcement as civil matters or family matters which is very similar to what happened, you know, like 40 years ago with domestic violence, you know, because it'd be like, well, they signed a power of an attorney and it was, it's like, well, no, they were, you know, basically, you know, signed it under duress or whatever used undue influence. And shouldn't, these people shouldn't be allowed to get away with this. And so anyway, that law was passed, it went into effect in 2015 and really, in addition, you know, just kind of to send this message that this stuff you know, is not okay to do this stuff in our state. But it also had this unexpected, very positive outcome of crea- of reconstituting th- that unit, which had hadn't been active with the attorney general's office. And so they they staffed it with the prosecutor and a victim witness advocate and a investigator. And I, it was in the news like a week or so ago. They just got money to get more people. Because they have this, um, because they were able to show the need. Anyway, so that's really good. So they're doing a lot of prosecutions, which is good. Got it. So there's an expansion into the criminal, you know, um, area of enforcement, and and that that does get me back to when you describe one of the scenarios. For example, the parent that signs over the house. So that's done by paperwork with a verbal promise that they get to stay there, and then the the family member backs out on that. And you mentioned how you were able to get some things done in court. I was wondering with the moment, you know, what legal basis is there to help protect the person in this case that you helped? It sounds like a very difficult civil case to have to raise. And Well, it's not, well, there is this legal theory um, called constructive trust. And actually that's usually the mechanism we use. And it, it, part of a constructive trust is if, if you can show that someone that had a, I forget the actual term, I'm sorry. No, I didn't <laughs> before but anyway like a, a, a special relationship sorry 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 yes sorry, sorry. <laughs> i'm trying to think of the actual term they use but it's basically a special relationship between the the parties and usually it's interpreted as a family member but it doesn't have to be but if you can show that they used undue influence to so that that's certainly in the so in the scenario where like the victim, you know, is worried. Oh, I'm getting old. I need someone to take care of me, and my child is, you know, promising to take care of me, and th- and, and I'll do this thing. I mean, that I does. I th- we can make the case for constructive cr- trust. Let's just put it that way in those scenarios. So it actually isn't that complicated, thankfully. Well, let me say, as as, as fellow attorneys, perhaps that I'm I'm trying to put my. I'll say I, I don't know this area of law very well at all, and I'm just saying, boy, does this sound complicated. So it's so great to to know that an office like yours is out there to help people navigate this particular issue. And let me then ask, as we sort of wrap up our conversation, how does one get in touch with the Justice and Aging Project and how do they get to you for help? The easiest way to get in touch with us is to call. We have a a number. I I will just point out that our 603 Legal Aid, which is a partner agency, they, they provide 
legal advice over the phone and do other things, but they do our intakes for us now. So we do have a dedicated number, but it does go to them. Just so you know. So, so the number is 1-888-353-9944. So anybody can call that number and get through, or you can do an online intake through 603 Legal Aid, which is 603 Legal Aid spelled out org. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, uh, Cheryl, for sharing all of these facts and insights into an area that I, I would imagine that many of the listeners, myself included, is participating in this did, didn't know until we walked into this conversation. So I appreciate that. I, I also uh, want to make sure I put in a plug for the fact that, as I understand it, you are a Franklin Pierce Law Center alum from 1993. Wonderful, wonderful. And so uh, it's good to know that you were able to take that time and then applied in such a positive way in the New Hampshire community is, is I understand that you've served almost nearly 30 years in the public service yeah. uh, sector in, in all sorts of issues. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's scary that it's 30 years, but yes, because <laughs> I'm old now, I guess. Uh, but, but the amount of work that I've heard here, your body of work with public policy development, the research and all of the reports that have to be generated to support the, the policy decisions or to move the needle on policy work, the, the movement of committees to commissions and all of the, the hard work in the trenches, that helps advance the, the cause. And so um, I thank you for all of that hard work, in addition to helping individuals with all the, the different complex issues that we talked about today. Oh, no problem. I, it's it's actually, I've, I feel very fortunate to be able to do this work and um, and, and hopefully make a difference. So I, I'm, I've been very happy to do it. <laughs> well, that's great. And I'm glad that you had the opportunity and the platform here to share some yep. of those experiences. So thank you so much, Cheryl. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay. Bye. This was Granite Justice, a podcast collaboration of the UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law, 603 Legal Aid, New Hampshire Legal Assistance, the New Hampshire Campaign Legal Services, and the Granite State News Collaborative. Thanks for your time.